0: that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy this message. All of which have significance in terms of enhancing our worship. But all of them also have significance with respect to prophecy and what they anticipate. We can't talk about that this evening for the sake of time. But Leviticus 23 is one of the major passages. The second one is is Numbers chapter 29. In the law, the Lord instructs us with regard to the celebration of Yom Teruah and Rosh Hashanah. And there, a number of offerings are to be offered on this occasion as well. But a third passage is found in the book of Ezra. In chapter 8, you'll find that after the walls of Jerusalem were reconstructed and were rebuilt, the first thing they did was to have Ezra come and take, or the book of Nehemiah, for Ezra to come and to begin to read the word of God before the people. And the day on which they started reading God's word was on Yom Teruah, the first day of the month of Tishrei, and here on Uh, Rosh Hashanah. So those are the three references in the Hebrew Scriptures. But there's also some interesting statements about the blowing of the Shofar and events that would take place when the Shofar would be blown. So for example, in Isaiah chapter 27, we read where the trumpet will be blown, the shofar would be blown, and the Lord will regather his people into his land, into the promised land, into the land of Israel. And that comports exactly with what Yeshua tells us because in Matthew chapter 24, he tells us that the Lord would send his angels out to the four corners of the earth with the sound of the shofar and that he would gather the Jewish people and bring them into the promised land that had been given to their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then there are some other interesting passages related to the blowing of the shofar, which have to do, in my understanding, with this event that will occur when the Lord calls us up to bring us into his very presence. Theologians refer to it as the rapture of the body of Messiah. It is a catching up. It is where we would be brought up into the very presence of God. And so we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that at the last trump, That this perishable will put on the imperishable, this corruptible will put on incorruption and in the twinkling of an eye we will be brought up into the very presence of God with the blowing of the shofar. Paul says the same thing in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 where he says there's coming a time when the dead in Messiah will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain at the time that this event occurs will be caught up. That's where we get the word rapture from. Caught up to meet the Lord in the clouds and thus we will be with him forevermore. First Thessalonians chapter 4. And we're told that that event will take place with the descent of Messiah to the clouds, with the voice of the archangel and with the shofar of the Lord, with the trumpet of the Lord will be sounded. It's also interesting when you take those passages and you look for example in the book of Revelation, the last book of the Brit Hadashah, the New Covenant Scriptures, it says that when John in vision in a vision was caught up into the very presence of God it tells us that when he heard the Lord's voice it sounded to him like a shofar, like the blowing of the shofar or the trumpet. And so when we look at these passages with regard to prophetic significance, we know that Rosh Hashanah speaks of that time when the Jewish people will be regathered into their homeland in preparation for the descent of Messiah when he will come to establish his kingdom on earth. We also know that it says something about you and I who are believers in Yeshua as Messiah, that there's coming a time when the trumpet will be blown, when the shofar will be blown, and then we will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, whether dead or alive. If dead, then our bodies will be resurrected from wherever they are, joined with our spirit to meet the Lord in the air. If we are alive, we will just be in the twinkling of an eye, just changed, transformed and brought right into the presence of God. So those are some passages that relate to the feast of trumpets and to Rosh Hashanah. But that's not what I want to share this this evening. But I want you to hear that because there's so much being said about prophecy today. Let me just caution you with regard to much about what you're hearing, it's the Word of God that is paramount and its proper interpretation. And we ought to be cautious about looking at current events and then trying to fit them into what the Word of God is teaching. It's the other way around. Look at the Word of God and see if those events have something to do with it. So I'm just cautious about it. I know I'm just not an exciting guy. I'm just, you know, I'm just very uh, cautious about stepping out on a limb and then finding out. That what had been said uh, has no relevance whatsoever Because there have been many people who have said Oh, the Lord will return on this night But we're still here And then I remember what a pastor had said many years ago When I was in his congregation He said, you know, the Lord said No man can know the day or the hour So if any one of us guesses the day or the hour The Lord changes it right away You know, because (laughs) no one can know the day or the hour Maybe he's right. Maybe he's right. But if you have your Bibles, uh, Genesis chapter 22 is the account of the offering of Isaac. This passage is read on Rosh Hashanah because at the end of the story, the Lord provides a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. And because we blow the shofar, the ram's horn, this passage is read. That's the connection. But there are great lessons in this passage for us to take note of. So let me read these for you. In verse 1 of chapter 22, it says, After these things God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. And Abraham took the wood and the burnt offering, laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, and he said, here am I, my son. He said, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your uh, offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to the young men. They arose and went together to 'er Beersheba, and Abraham lived at 'er Beersheba. This is undoubtedly... The greatest moment in the Hebrew scriptures. Maybe the greatest moment in history apart from that moment when Yeshua gave his life a ransom for many. That is how powerful this passage is and why it just grips our attention even just reading it as we had opportunity to read. One of the neat things about studying the Bible is noticing the first time things are mentioned in the scripture. And in this passage, there's a number of first, uh, first statements or first uh, messages. For example, take a look at what he says at the end. He says, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. That's the first time that is added to the promises that God has made to Abraham. All the other things have been reiterated. He said that before. But in this passage now, he tells us that one day Abraham's descendants will possess the gate of his enemies. This indicates that there's going to be conflict among Abraham's people and his descendants. We're seeing that conflict played out in our own day and age. But the end result will be that Israel will possess the gates of their enemies. And that's the promise God has made. And it's first stated here. Now, look at the first verse. And after these things, God tested Abraham. This is the first time we read of a testing. Now, the word here doesn't mean to lure into sin, but rather to prove or to demonstrate the righteousness of the man. In this case, the righteousness of Abraham. This is occurring at the end of Abraham's life. In fact, the next chapter, Sarah dies at 127. By the way, Sarah is the only woman in scripture whose age is given. 127 when she dies. No other woman do we read of of her age. That's how important, how significant Sarah is as the matriarch of the Jewish people. And so what we're being told here is that Abraham, over the course of his life, he had gone through ups and downs, valleys of all sorts. You remember at the beginning of his life, he was afraid to even acknowledge that Sarah was his wife for fear that he would be killed. And so we find that Abraham has gone through stages of his life. He's now come to that point where God can give him the ultimate test of tests to offer up his son as a burnt offering To the Lord in worship and in praise. And Abraham comes through with flying colors. He's very much like Job to me here. You know, Job was a man who was greatly tested. But it's interesting to note that he is tested by virtue of the fact that God drew attention to Job. He said to the evil one, Have you seen my servant Job? He's the most righteous man in all the earth. And Satan says, well, I'll tell you, if you take away from him all the blessings, all the good things you give him, you would not see him be very righteous. But what we find through the book of Job is no matter what God took away or what Satan took away from Job, he remained a very faithful man of God. Abraham is now demonstrating the same kind of faithfulness like Job had exhibited. He was being tested or proved to demonstrate what God has done in his life. So what trials and tribulations are you going through and am I going through this day? What are the struggles we're having? And you know what our first response is, why is God doing this to me? And what is it that I've done so wrong that these tribulations have come upon me? But you know, more often than not, it has nothing to do with that. It has to do with the fact that God sees you as a very righteous individual because of what God has done in your life. And he's giving you an opportunity to demonstrate that righteousness in the midst of a trial and amidst of a a tribulation. So this is the first time the word testing is used. And take a look at this. He tests Abraham he said, Abraham. And he said, Hineni, here am I. This is the first time this phrase comes up. And this is an all important phrase in the scripture. Five individuals respond to God when he calls with the same phrase, Hinani. Abraham's the first one. But the second one is Jacob. When Jacob returns from his father in law, Laban, with Rachel and with Uh, Leah, and they come back to the land of Israel, God is telling, or I should say Jacob is telling his wives that he needs to return to the land of promise. He tells him that in a dream, God spoke to him and told him to rise up and return to the land of his fathers. And Jacob said to his wives that he responded with, here am I, and he goes. But Jacob's not the only one. Later we read of another man, Moses, who when he is in the wilderness and God reveals himself to Moses in a bush that is burning but is not being consumed, he draws Moses to himself, he tells him to take off his sandals, and the Lord calls him, and Moses' response is, Hineni, here am I. And the Lord commissions him to go and bring the, the Jewish people out of Egypt. But they're not the only ones either. As you go further into the Hebrew Scriptures, you read of a young man. In fact, he's just a child. His name is Samuel. And his mother, Hannah, places Samuel into the care of Eli, the high priest at this time in Israel's history. And while he is sleeping, he hears the voice of God so clearly that he gets up and he runs to the high priest's bed and he says, Did you call me? And he does that three times. And every time Samuel, as a young boy, hears the voice of God, he says, Hineni, here am I. And he becomes the very first of the formal prophets, the last of the judges, the one who anoints the first two kings of Israel, Saul and David. But he's not the only one. If we go further into the scriptures, we read of the prophet Isaiah who in a vision is called up into the very presence of God, and he sees the throne room of the Lord, and he sees the smoke of God's glory filling the throne room. And the Lord says, who will go for me? And Isaiah stands up and says, Hineni, here am I, send me. But you know, the greatest Hinani I found in the scripture, if you want to check this out, take a look at this. In Isaiah chapter 58. This is a passage that speaks of the kingdom of Messiah and Israel's inheritance and the fulfillment of the promises and the blessings that comes to God's people. And in chapter 58, verse 8, The Lord says, Then shall, or Isaiah is recording God's words, Then shall your light break forth. Talking about the light of God's glory reflected off of his people Israel. He says, Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. He says, Your righteousness shall go before you, and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. He's speaking of the Shekinah glory. The glory of the Lord will just surround the Jewish people. And then watch this. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and get this. And the Lord will say, Hineni. Now, isn't that that amazing or what? You know, you go through the scriptures and you see how when God calls individuals, their response is Hineni. But is it really possible to call God and God will say Hineni? Well, the passage here says one day Israel is going to call on the Lord and the Lord will say, here am I. But we don't have to wait to that day. If you don't know Messiah, you can call on him now and he will say, here am I. What have you been waiting for? You know, I'm just waiting for you to call on me so I can enter into your life and transform you and save you. But take, the, take a look at this. In going back to chapter 22 of Genesis. It says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. This is the first time the word love appears in the scriptures. And what's really neat about that is it is in the context of a father's love for his son. Do you know where the first time the word love appears in the Brit Shah? It's in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Isn't that kind of cool? The first time you read of love in the Hebrew scriptures, it's the love of the father for his son. The first time you read of love in the Brit Hadashah, the New Covenant scriptures, it's the love of the father for his son and for the world. So what is love all about? Love is that sacrificial giving of oneself as a father would for his own son or ought to be for his own, own son. But here God is... Telling Abraham, now listen, this is the son I want you to take. And what I want you to do, notice that he does not tell him, I want you to kill your son. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, I want you to murder your son. He says, I want you to offer him as a burnt offering. This is not an indiscriminate killing of another person. This is an offering of to the Lord. Now we can't get into all of that. That will take us too long to, to to discuss. But what I want you to see is that this is meant to be an act of worship as Abraham is to offer his son. That's not to say it's not painful because he's going to be told to give up that which is most dear to him to indicate that God is most dear to Abraham. Abraham's being tested with regard to his loyalty and love and trust to the Lord. And that meant that he would give up what was most precious to him if God so ordered it. And God does order it and tells Abraham, you're to offer up your son. Now take a look at this. He says, he's very clear, it's Isaac that you're to offer up you one and only unique son, the son of promise. You're to go to the land of Moriah. The word Moriah, by the way, only appears twice in the Hebrew Scriptures. This is the first time. The second time is in 2 Chronicles chapter 3. And it's there that Solomon is told to build the temple on Mount Moriah. So now get this. God is telling Abraham to offer up his son as a burnt offering on the very place that God is going to instruct Solomon to build the temple upon which thousands upon thousands of offerings are going to be offered in the history of Israel. And not only that, but not far from the temple is Mount Calvary, where the Messiah himself will be an offering for the world. So, this passage is not an accidental passage. This is a passage in which we are to see God's plan of redemption, not only for his people, but for the world. I say for the world because earlier the Lord called Abraham and said, In you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And now Abraham is going to be given the opportunity to illustrate just how that's going to happen. And notice what happens. He tells him to take him to Mount Moriah, to offer him on one of the mountains, he would tell him. And look at verse 3. Abraham is such a righteous man that the first thing he does is to rise early in the morning. Now, you know as well as I do, when you have an appointment on a given day that you're not really happy about, you're not rising up early in the morning. You know, you sort of take your time and slumber out of that bed and then get up and move. And then finally say, you know, I've got to get to this thing. And so you go. But that's not Abraham's attitude. Abraham's attitude is he rises up early in the morning. He saddled his donkey. He took two of his young men with him and his son. Now, notice this. He cuts the wood for the burnt offering And he rose and went to the place of which God had told him. Now look at verse 4. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. It's no accident that this is the third day. Now think about this. On this day, he's not going to kill Isaac, but he's actually going to receive him back, right? On the third day, when he gets up, we read the passage. The Lord tells him not to offer up his son and that he did demonstrate his righteousness. So on the third day, he doesn't offer up his son. On the third day, he receives his son back from the dead, as it were. In fact, for these three days, in Abraham's mind, Isaac was dead. Abraham was committed to offering up his son. And so when did Abraham... Isaac die in Abraham's mind. He died the moment God told him to offer up his son. And so for three days in Abraham's mind, he's en route to offer up his son and to see his son die. But it's on the third day that his son actually lives for Abraham and he's given back to him. So is it an accident that Yeshua was dead for three days and three nights and rose on the third day. I mean, the parallels are just too striking to be an accident. But look what happens also. He says to his companions, those two that are with him, on the third day, Abraham lifts up his eyes, verse 5, then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the lad will go over there and worship And come again to you. Now, that also caused me to pause. How does an individual, knowing that he's going to offer up his son, also speak about going to worship God? You know, when you think of the trials in your life, do we really think that in the midst of them we are going to worship God? That's what Abraham was thinking. Abraham's thought was, we're going to worship the Lord. In the midst of our trial, in the midst of our despair, despite what the challenge is, he's a worshiper of God. That's the key to Abraham. He's a worshiper of God. He's sold out to God, and he's seeking to please him and to honor him. His whole attitude is that what he's about to do is an act of worship to the Lord to ascribe worthiness to his God who has called him out of Chaldea and made him his own. Now, we shouldn't forget about Isaac because Isaac isn't an infant. He's a na'ar, which is the word lad, but that word is a very broad term that can be used of a child even or a, a person even up until their 20s. Now, we know that Sarah dies at 127. We know that Isaac was born when she was 90. That means she only lived with Isaac for some 30... You do the math. That's not my my area. 30... Barry knows the math. 30 some odd years that she lived with Isaac. She weaned him. It says in the previous chapter, she weaned him. So if that was three years... That means that uh, Isaac could be anywhere between 15, 17, and some scholars suggest 25 years old. That means Isaac was a willing participant. He was obedient to his father, and he submitted himself to his father's leading and his father's guidance. He never resisted him. He was simply a willing, well, should we say it, a willing offering. As Abraham is going to offer him up. And then take a look at this. These are things that just struck me the first time, I, I, just recently I was reading this. But if you look at verse um, six, and Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and he laid it on Isaac his son. Now, isn't that interesting? Isaac is, ca- is carrying the wood, but he's not carrying the wood. The wood is laid on him. It's as if he strapped it on his back. Now, you know, listen, I'm not trying to push anything. But when you read about the offering that Messiah gave, how did he carry his wood? You know, he carries it on his back. It was laid on him. And the prophets that speak of what the Messiah would do speak of him as having our sin and our trespasses laid upon him, that he bore our trespasses, it says in Isaiah 53, of the promised Messiah. And the imagery of Isaac is that of bearing the wood that he would carry. It was Abraham who had the fire. But you know what's interesting? It says that Abraham has the fire and the knife, but he doesn't mention the knife. He only mentions he had the fire We know from the earlier verses he has the fire and the knife. But at this passage, it simply says he had the fire and he laid the wood on Isaac. So I don't know. It's almost like Abraham in his compassion is hiding the knife from his son. He doesn't mention it. But he certainly employs it. He goes to use it because the angel has to hold him back and tells him not to strike his son with it. But take a look at more of this. And then it says, so they were both, and this is really a neat passage too. He says, he took his ha- in his hand the fire and the knife, so they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, he said, here am I. Three times, by the way, Abraham says nani in this section. He says, behold the fire and the wood. See, Isaac doesn't mention the knife. He says, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. You know what struck me this time is that last phrase. It's repeated twice. It says, So they went, both of them, together. The two young men are not with them. This is just a private affair of both the father and the son. Abraham and Isaac. Now think of the death of Messiah. But think of this. Abraham and Isaac walk alone to this place. And when you think of the death that Messiah provides for his people, it was he and his father that walked alone and knew the circumstances fully and the intensity of what he was to bear. I mean, his own disciples wondered what was going on when Yeshua said that he would be betrayed into the hands of sinful men and that he would be killed and he would rise the third day. His own disciples didn't know what he was talking about. They didn't believe him. But the ones that knew was the Father and the Son. And together, they moved forward in providing redemption. And this is what is similar in this passage. This passage. And then it says in verse 9, when they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar, he laid the wood on it, and he laid Isaac on top of the wood. And then he reached out his hand, he took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord, now here's another strange passage. The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, third time he says, Hineni. And look what the angel says. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Now, wouldn't you expect the angel of the Lord to say, you have not withheld your son, your only son, from God or from him? Why does he say you would not withhold your son from me? So the angel of the Lord is a unique personage in the Hebrew Scriptures too. In fact, he seems to identify himself with God himself. I mean, on the one hand, he says, I know that you fear God. You would expect him to say, I know that you fear me. But no, he says, I know that you fear God. And then he says, but you did not withhold your son from me. It's very confusing, mysterious stuff, isn't it? But that's the nature of God. He is mysterious in this respect. And then it's then that it's at that point, And look at this. He says, for now, I know that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Now, I want you to turn over into the Brit very quickly. And if you look at Romans chapter eight, and I'm not sure what page it is on the Bibles that you have. But if you look at Romans chapter eight, Paul writes these remarkable words. I can, no, I can't find it. Oh I'm about. Sure right if you look at verse 31, he says, "What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us?" Now look at this verse. "He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all." how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In other words, Paul is saying, if God has given up the greatest thing he has, well, that means we are possessors of the least things that God has. So if he's going to give us the greatest thing, how would he, how would he withhold from us even smaller things? But what I want you to take a look at is this phrase, he did not spare His own son. Now the question is, where did Paul get that idea from? This this thought of not sparing. If you look back at Genesis chapter twenty-two, and you see that passage where the angel of the Lord says, "Seeing you have not withheld your son," if we were to pick up the Septuagint—that's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures—that was done about two hundred years before the time of Messiah. It's called the Septuagint or the Seventy because allegedly 70 rabbis from Alexandria translated the Hebrew scriptures into Greek. When they came to that passage, those rabbis translated the word withheld with the Greek word that's translated in our English Bibles, did not spare. In fact, the very same Greek word in Genesis 22 is the same Greek word in Romans 8. 32, was it? 30, 32. So, where did Paul get that idea from? Well, he got it from this passage. And undoubtedly, he's comparing what Isaac had endured with what Messiah of Israel had endured. And then the passage goes on to say that God withheld him from slaying his son and provided a ram in his place to offer as a burnt offering in place of his son. And then in verse 15, it says, the angel called out a second time. And here's another mysterious thing. Because he says, by myself, I have sworn, declares who? The Lord. Right? You would have expected, declares the angel of the Lord. But it doesn't say that. It does the same thing that happened just a few verses before. By myself, I have sworn. This is the first time God swears. It's the first time God makes his covenant and then swears that he will not renege on it. And what he promises is that I will bless you. This is what he said to him in Genesis 12. I will bless you and I will multiply your offspring. But he adds the one thing, that you shall possess the gate of his enemies. This is a passage that was meant for us to see something deeper than merely Abraham offering his son. It was sort of a type, a picture, a looking forward to a greater son who would be offered. And by the way, on my shelf, you know, I have all kind of Bibles. And I just was curious, you know, because I hadn't done this in a while. But I picked up the Jewish Publication Society Scriptures, and I was just reading the passage in it. I wanted to, you know, present my thoughts to you from it, but... um The print is bigger, and so I thought I'd forget where things were. So I decided I'd work from this. But I want to read the translation they provide of this passage. In Genesis chapter 22, I thought this was pretty remarkable, uh, but it's accurate according to the Hebrew, because it says that uh, in Genesis 22, when Isaac asks in verse 4, Behold the fire in the wood, but where is the lamb for burnt offering? You see, my translation says, God will provide for himself the lamb. Literally, it just says, God will provide himself a lamb. Which could be taken, God will provide for himself a lamb, or God will provide himself as the lamb. Could be translated that way. And there's good reason to think that. Because we have lambs being offered in different places. But Isaiah 53 speaks of Messiah being led as a lamb to the slaughter and remaining silent in obedience to the Father so as to carry our sins and carry our trespasses. But here's what was interesting to me. When I read the Jewish Publication Society, the translation into English, when they came to that verse, they said, and Abraham said, let me go back just to kind of build it up. But he says, and he said, here am I, my son, Abraham says. Behold the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide himself the lamb. Isn't that kind of neat? I mean, the Jewish translators were, and that's from like 1955. You know, there wasn't a whole ax to grind. And then they, they didn't say the Lord will provide for himself a lamb, they just have, the Lord will provide himself a lamb. And that's a very literal translation, and it means that it can be opened up in a variety of directions, can it? And so let me just close by saying this. It's the reason why when Yochanan John writes about Messiah in John chapter 8, he says, he makes this reference. Yeshua says this. He says, Yeshua says, you have not known him, speaking about the father. I know him. For if I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar. But I do know him and I keep his word. Now watch this. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. And then this phrase, he saw it and was glad. What is Messiah talking about, you know? I mean, Abraham didn't live until the year, I don't know, 30 AD or, you know, BC, BCE or CE. You know, he didn't live to the time when Yeshua walked the earth. So how was it that, it said, that he says he, um, that Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day and he saw it and was glad? I think what Yeshua is referring to is this event in Genesis chapter 22. That when Abraham began to offer up, well, even from the very beginning, he realized that something bigger was at stake here than merely him offering up Isaac. That he knew somehow this was a picture of the redemption that his greater son, the son of Abraham, would provide for him and for his people, and for the world. And when he took note of this, when he reflected deeply upon it, he rejoiced in it. And that's the challenge, isn't it? That we would find ourselves rejoicing in the truths of God's word, and in rejoicing in it, embracing it, and experiencing the new life that comes as a result of it. Abraham was a worshiper. He was a man of great faith and a man of great righteousness. And when called upon to offer even up his son, he was ready to do that because he had a relationship with God that was real and it was genuine. When I was a young person, a, a young, person, <laughs> young boy, <laughs> and uh, I always wanted to be like Abraham, you know, I always thought, and the thing that I thought about was, I wanted to hear God's voice like Abraham did, you know. I didn't necessarily want to hear the same things that Abraham heard, but I wanted to hear his voice. And I never did. I mean, I was in synagogue every week. I was in Hebrew school all throughout the week, you know. And I felt proud and still do that I'm Jewish, you know, and that Abraham is my father or forefather or great, 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 great grandfather, you know. And so all that was important to me, but what i couldn 't get was why God seemed so aloof to me. I mean I'd go to the synagogue, i 'd try to keep up with everybody reading the Hebrew and i 'd get lost. What page are they on again? My father would say, "Come on, stay up with us, you know <laughs> and i 'm trying you know and what I really wanted was, God, would you just speak to me and you know the experience of him speaking to me, and he's never spoken to me like he spoke to Abraham, you know. But finally connecting came when I sort of surrendered myself to what I really knew was true, you know. And as I began to hear about Messiah for the first time, Yeshua being the Messiah, it was really hard to accept. I know now, 40-some-odd years later, it seems so easy to say some of the things that I'm saying. But when I was 17 and a person asked me to read a Bible that had the New Testament, that was one of the scariest things I ever did. And then when I had read it and I found myself liking Yeshua, that was also pretty scary because I was told that he was not for me. He was for the Gentiles. And so what was I doing feeling comfortable with him? And that was kind of scary stuff. And then when I eventually walked into a church building, I don't mean a Messianic congregation, I mean a church building. And people were like singing hymns. This was like weird stuff to me. And when I'd see, you know, images and, you know, kind of things, it was like so foreign to me. And it was really scary. But God took me through slowly, step by step, eased me into a relationship with him. And my longing to hear God's voice, something like Abraham heard, was finally realized when I surrendered to him. And so when I read a passage like this, you know, that says, um, surely our diseases, our sins, another way of reading it, he did bear, there's Isaac, bearing, and our pains he carried. We thought he was stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted, and by the way, I'm just reading out of the Jewish Bible. But he was wounded because of our transgressions. He was crushed because of our iniquities. The chastisement of our welfare was upon him. And with his stripes, we were healed. And all we like sheep, we go astray. We turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord made it to fall on him. My translation says, made to light on him. But to fall on him, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, though he humbled himself, and he opened not his mouth, as a lamb there it is, is led to the slaughter, and as a sheep that before her shears is dumb, yea he opened not his mouth. He says he was cut off, that's the word he was killed. He was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people, to whom the stroke was due. I came to realize that this was about Mashiach. And by the way, the oldest interpretations by the rabbis, I have a big thick volume that has all the interpretations of Isaiah 53, you know. And you go back to the oldest ones, they all speak of Messiah in Isaiah 53. And the connection with Genesis 22 is startling, isn't it? And it's there, not because God is hiding from us, or God is restraining his voice from us, rather just the opposite. God is making himself known, and he's speaking loud and clear. So as we blow the shofar, inaugurating 5,776, Messiah is still available to you this day. Is that nutty? That's just nutty. The Lord is available to us today, not only to find salvation in life, but also to have life more thank you for listening to our message we hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to him do remember us in your prayers and if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel with a large or small would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry you can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. that is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org.